Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today we're going to be doing something a little bit different than our regular podcast. We're going to be posting our talks from our 2011 Alpha course. So the title of today's talk is, Who is Jesus? So if you miss a class or if you're just following along from home, uh, you'll have these up for the next seven or eight weeks. One note about the talk that's uh, posted today there is a gap of about two or three minutes in the middle of it where our batteries on a recorder went down. So hopefully you can still kind of get what we were talking about, but feel free to email me through the website if you've got any questions. All right, well, let's head over to North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington, Alpha Course. Who is Jesus? Well, good evening. Welcome to Alpha. How are you guys doing? Well, this is our, our opening talk, and uh, this is kind of be kind of like Survivor each week. We're probably going to consolidate the table, so next week we're going to eliminate that table probably. Uh, we, we do still have some room if you have any friends. We will allow them in at least next week, and then, that, then we're closing, closing the doors. But uh, tonight the topic is, who is Jesus? And uh, I thought, what better way for us to delve into an aspect like this than to really look at some of the deep thoughts that have come from the culture around us on, you know, thought-provoking ideas on the person of Jesus. So I thought tonight we'd open up with some words uh, from the uh, modern-day philosopher, theologian, Ricky Bobby. So... Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And, of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox, mm. who if you were to rate her ass on 100, it would easily be a 94. I mm. also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. <sighs> Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the damn grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like I want to be formal but I'm here to party too because I like to party so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus... Like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, 
newborn infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Also, due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace, I just want to say that Powerade is delicious mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Let's dig in. What on? All right. <laughs> well, um, yeah, as you can see, there's lots of strange ideas about Jesus uh, in our culture. <laughs> you know, regardless of whether whatever you think about Jesus as a person, it's hard to to make a case that he's not one of the most iconic figures. Uh, on planet Earth in the, two, the last 2,000 years. We see Jesus popping up everywhere in our culture in the modern day, from Madonna, Prince, Lenny Kravitz, who wear crosses around their neck. We even hear the words of Jesus often quoted in political rallies. You hear politicians saying, the, the truth will set you free, or a house divided cannot stand. You know, those came from... Jesus. And so we find that, that, that evidence of, of Jesus, it exists everywhere. And so tonight, uh, do I pass out the book? Oh, yes. Uh, Mike's passing out some books tonight uh, on our talk, Who is Jesus? And I, I got to say from the get-go that, that we're going to be probably changing up the talk a little bit from the way it is in your book. The typical Alpha Talk deals with this question of who is Jesus by kind of covering a lot of the historical bases of, of proving that Jesus was an actual human being that existed in a, an actual point in time and in Palestine, first century Palestine. Um, but while there's some really great things on that, I'm not going to dig too deep into that tonight. You know, I, I, did, uh, I did get my degree in history at Southeastern Louisiana University. Any, any Southeastern alumni here? All right, Penny. All right, and Floyd, woohoo! Shake and bake. Uh, <laughs> so I got this real useful degree in history, um, and um, just in case this pastoring thing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a historian. But one thing that that, that we talked about when I was in, in uh, getting my history degree was the idea of of learning from textual criticism of ancient documents and, and, and trying to figure out what history, what really happened in history by looking at the texts that existed back then. And your book, you're going to find some stuff on textual criticism, and, and I'm just going to cut to the chase there. You can go back and read it later, but basically what textual criticism does, you, you look at the amount of documents that say the same thing that are related to the time period when, when the events happen. And the closer you get to the time period and the more diverse documents that say the same thing, the more accurate uh, that event is. And so judging by that criteria, there's more evidence that Jesus existed as a human being on planet Earth some 2,000 years ago than for probably any other person in history at that time. So it's interesting stuff. But you know, I find the question that most people have isn't, did, isn't whether Jesus existed as a human being. The question is, was Jesus more than a human being? 
Was Jesus just a good teacher? Was he just an inspirational speaker? Or was he more than that? You know, it's interesting. A lot of the world religions, when it comes to the person of Jesus, they don't, they don't have any problem with him as a teacher. Did you know that the Quran, the, the Islamic holy book, has over a hundred verses that specifically talk about Jesus? A lot of people don't know that. The Quran, and it talks highly of Jesus. You're not going to find a devout Muslim that's going to have anything bad to say about Jesus as a human being and as a good teacher. Now, they won't believe that he's God. But even the Muslim opinion of Jesus is that he's a a really righteous guy. He was a, a prophet. He was a wise teacher. There's even plenty of people in Judaism who, who have respect for Jesus as a, as a moral teacher, as, as someone who, who spoke truth. Actually, did you know uh, Gandhi, the, the one who led uh, a movement of freedom over in India, he was a Hindu, grew up Hindu, was a Hindu to his, till his dying day. But you know what inspired him to the whole revolution of nonviolence that overthrew the, the, the tyranny that India was under? It was Jesus. Gandhi was inspired by the testimony, the words, the teachings of Jesus. And it brought about a revolution. So when it comes to world religions and pop culture and all this stuff, we find that most people have no problem with Jesus as just a person, with Jesus as a teacher, maybe even with Jesus as a prophet. But Jesus, if we're going to take his word seriously, we have to take some of his other things seriously that he said. And Jesus actually made the the outstanding claim that he was actually God himself. And so tonight, I want us to look at this question. Who is Jesus? Was he really God? And if he was God, what the heck does that mean to you and me? See, I, I said something last week, and if you missed last week, I just said that you know, what, what most people are after is not a full mind, it's a full heart. And I got to tell you, I've been a Christian for about 20 years, and when it comes to this question of who is Jesus, I've been around a lot of these debates, and maybe you've even seen some yourself, where you get a really brilliant Christian versus a really brilliant atheist, and I've listened to some of these debates before, and you hear the brilliant Christian give his points on why God exists and why Jesus is God, and and you're like, yes, yes, he said amazing things. But then all of a sudden, the atheist gets up and and comes up with all his reasons, like, wow, that was pretty convincing too. (laughs) And we find that, that a lot of these debates on the person of Jesus is really just two people shouting back and forth at each other, making really good Points based on really good logic on why God exists or why God doesn't exist. And honestly, tonight, we could do the talk along those lines, and I could, I could give a, a brilliant presentation on what? At least okay. Well, at least okay. At least semi-brilliant <laughs> on, on the evidence for God and why Jesus is God. But, you know, honestly, I think that might give you a full mind, but it wouldn't leave your heart filled. And so tonight, I really believe that that, that central to Jesus' message was this idea that, that we could actually uh, encounter God as human beings. So I would like us to frame this question of who is Jesus in perhaps a different way than you've typically seen it, seen it framed. See, I think a lot of our problems with, with religion, with 
the existence of God, with the person of Jesus, is the, the argument has been framed by this kind of enlightenment uh, thinking. Now, the enlightenment, just a quick history lesson. A few hundred years ago, there was the enlightenment began to happen, and there was the scientific revolution, and, and it was really good. It's brought us about you know, a lot of amazing things like miracles in science, you know, uh, medicine, technology. I'm a big fan of the progress that it's brought about. But the scientific revolution kind of looked at truth as something to be isolated and dealt with apart from the whole. So there's a, a word called reductionism. Everybody say reductionism. That's our word for the night. Yeah, you won't use that anywhere else this week. But, um, but the idea of reductionism in, 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 in modernism and in enlightenment is that you break something down to its smallest components and you remove it from the whole and then you analyze it and that's the way you can learn truth. And that does work when it comes to biology. You can look at the cellular structure of things and figure out things about the whole body. But that kind of thinking, while it's really helpful in biology, it's not so helpful when it comes to what's the meaning of life? What, why are we here? Is there a God? See, the downside of the Enlightenment is that it thought of truth as something that if you can't prove it by the scientific method, by putting it in a lab, then it's not true. And your experience, no matter how profound it is, is not true unless it can be verified in a lab. But I think we all know that we've experienced some things that it's hard to maybe say that that was true or not in a scientific way. And so science has kind of dealt with truth as something to be reduced and abstracted. But you know what? Even in, the, even in the area of science in the last 50 years, science is beginning to see that, that really the universe is much more relational than we've been led to believe. The universe is relational at its core. There's this, this brand of science called, uh, or branch of science called quantum physics, and quantum physics, they've actually, they've actually figured out some really crazy things that are, are messing with scientific minds and really turning the scientific world upside down. Like when you study a particle of light, just by studying it, you are influencing the results of it. Just by observing something, you're causing it to change. And so the idea that we can observe anything and be totally objective, it's, it's, it's being thrown upside down. There's a relationship between the observer and the, and the observed. Now, this isn't a science lesson, okay? I'm not going to get too deep into quantum physics tonight because that's about all I know, okay? We've covered history, quantum physics, philosophy. We're done. But what I want to say tonight, instead of looking at the question of Jesus as something to be you know, reduced to these abstractions or, or just truths that we can fill our minds with tonight, I want to frame the conversation with the idea that the universe is at its core relational. And I believe this is something we can all understand because we experience it in our everyday life. For instance, my wife Dina, who's not here tonight, uh, when we first met, it was love at first sight at least for me. <laughs> it took her a little while to come around. You know, back in that day, I had really long hair, and I was kind of a rocker guy, and, and Dina was not. And uh, her friend liked me. But I thought she was beautiful the moment I saw her. But you know what? We've, we, we dated for about six months, and now we've been married for 14 years. And I can honestly tell you that, that 
I think my wife's more beautiful now than she was 14 years ago. And it's not just the beauty externally. It's that there's beauty within that has been unveiled. I knew her at one level 14 years ago, but now there's a richness in our relationship. And and now there's a beauty that has come forth. It's relational. And so I want us to, to think, of, think of things, to frame this argument in terms of, of relational ideas, because I think that's what Jesus quite often did in his earthly ministry. He talked about things in very relational terms. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected to me and you're going to bear fruit. He talked about a lot of organic things from our agriculture, relational. So let's move on to the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus was on planet Earth... He talked a lot about sin. Have you ever bumped into folks down, like, maybe on Bourbon Street that, you know, hold up signs, you know, repent, sinners? You ever done that? You know, I, I remember at, at SLU, there was a group of people <laughs> worshiping and being with the Lord. And uh, that afternoon, my mom, she was going to be going out of town for two weeks, so she had invited me over a couple of weeks before my birthday to, to have a birthday dinner over in Ponchatoula. And we get in the car, and I'm not going to get into the details of the argument, but needless to say, as soon as we got in the, in the car, an argument began to develop. And that argument continued all the way to Ponchatoula. Forty minutes later, we're pulling up, and maybe you've experienced this before. You, you finally get to your destination, you're arguing, and you can either resolve the conflict right there, or you can press pause <laughs> Go in and act like you love each other. And then, uh, and that's what we did. We pressed pause. We went in. Ah, we love each other. We're smiling. We're eating. Pass the potatoes, dear. Uh, and uh, everything was okay. And then we get back in the car and we push play again. And we're arguing all the way back from Ponchatoula to Abita Springs. Then we get out of the car and the, and the kids went off to their room. So we amped it up a little bit. And so it's like an hour later, we've been in this fight now for like, we put three hours into this thing. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but uh, so finally we get to a point of resolve. We finally get down to some of the issues that had been aggravating both of us. And once we resolved the issues, it felt really good. But you know what? There was this point, once we had got down to the real issues, everything still wasn't taken care of. You know why? Because I said some things I probably shouldn't have said in the heat of the moment. You ever done that before? <laughs> and I was faced with a choice at that moment. I could just leave things where they are. I mean, heck, we got down to at three hours. We got down to the core issues. Let's just go to bed. I mean, I didn't want to fight anymore. Let's just go to bed. I, I could have done that. But what I had to do was really fess up to the thing, you know, that I had really said some things I didn't need to say to my wife, and, and I needed to own up to them. I don't think any of us like to think of ourselves as bad people, do we, right? I mean, even when we do bad things, we, we kind of like to we insulate ourselves from that knowledge. I'm, I'm basically a good person. We don't like to think of ourselves as people who would do something bad to some other people you know, or some other person, especially someone we love. But that's exactly what I had to do that night. I had to say, Dina, that, that comment I made... <laughs> that name I called you, that phrasing of things, that turning things around on you, that was wrong. And I, I need you to forgive me. And you know what? She did. And that was good. 
Because honestly, that night we could have gone to bed and there would have been, you know, it would have been okay. It was just a little, it was just a little side issue. You ever seen boats out in the ocean, they get these barnacles on them? I think that's what would have happened in our relationship. I would have just got like a little barnacle. A little barnacle stuck to me. It's no big deal. One barnacle, right? But you know what? It makes it that much easier, the next argument, (laughs) to just get another barnacle and another barnacle. And after a while, you can see the accumulation of this stuff begins to cause a very real separation in your heart. See, a lot of people think that you know divorce just happens in a moment, but it doesn't. It's it, Two people separate over a very long period of time, the trajectory of their lives. Gradually, they get this buildup between them, and it causes a separation. I needed to be forgiven that night. I needed to own up to what I was. And that's what sin really is. That's the detru- destructive power of sin, is that it harms us relationally. It gets us in a point of isolation, a point of alienation, a place of bitterness, We become less of ourselves. We become more isolated and alone. And Jesus said, I came that you could be free from that stuff, that you could experience life the way I intended it. You know, one of my favorite authors, anybody ever read a guy named Malcolm Gladwell? Okay. He's he's a good writer. Check him out. Uh, (laughs) But Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he, he wrote this book a few years ago called Blink. And in this first chapter, he talks about a method of uh, analyzing marriage relationships and that this guy does up at the University of Washington. And, and Gladwell, the, the, basically this guy can analyze a marriage and prove you know, with 90% certainty whether this couple will be together in 10 years. 90% certainty. Now, just to, to keep in mind the statistics here, psychologists, therapists, counselors, their track record for predicting whether a couple is going to be together 10 years from now, it's about 50%. It's like flipping a coin. But this guy at the University of Washington has figured out a way to analyze a marriage, and it's, 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 it's a process he calls thin slicing. And here's what happens on thin slicing. You get a couple to come to the observation place, and they sit down, and you hook up some stuff, kind of like a polygraph, you know, some wires to check their heart rate and different things. And then they get the couple to have a conversation for an hour and they video them. And then they take a 15-minute slice of that video and they take it back to the lab and they analyze it frame by frame. Because you know, sometimes you can say things with your mouth, but your body lies, right? You, you can say, oh, I love you. It didn't, it didn't mean anything to me. You can be saying that and smiling and, and, and your, your, your body will tell on you. And that's what they, they analyze these things frame by frame, looking for 20 different indicators. And you know what they found? They found that if there are four things that pop up with any regularity in a 15-minute slice of a couple's marriage, it's a bad sign that that couple is not going to be together years down the road. You know what these four things are? Defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, and contempt. If those things are popping up in a 15-minute slice of a couple's marriage, that's bad news. You know what the worst of them was? Contempt. Because I can be critical of somebody. I can be critical of Al. Not that I would. But I can be critical of him, disagree, you know, oh, Al, you know, come on, really. But you know what contempt is? It's actually looking down on another person. I'm better than you, Al. Uh, I, I don't have any respect for you. And when that begins to pop up in a marriage, they can, they can uh, prove with 90% accuracy 
that this couple is not going to be together 10 years down the road. Now, I say that because I want us to understand sin along those lines, that contempt, criticism, defensiveness, these are sins against relationships, and they are the things that that lead us to a place of isolation. One of my favorite authors, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he wrote this book uh, called The Great Divorce, and it was about, it's kind of a fictional account of what hell looks like, you know, and, and C.S. Lewis, his version of hell was that it was a never-ending subdivision, <laughs> and, and the way C.S. Lewis imagined it was that all the things that, that, that we experience in life, pride and bitterness and whatever, they, the, the trajectory continues in the afterlife, and so he sees hell as being this, this subdivision, and it's mainly vacant, because people can't get along to, together because <laughs> they got so much bitterness and anger and pride and they can't resolve things, so they keep moving further and further away. And that's an that's a interesting thought to think of, but I, I, I think that understanding sin in those terms, it helps it bring, bring it back from just being abstract. You know, Jesus came to forgive me of my sins. He came to free me from sin. What does that mean? Well, Jesus came to connect us back to God so we could experience relationship with our Creator again. We could experience relationship with other people the way God intended it to. We could actually be connected to our own hearts again. Jesus came to remove the barnacles that get between us and other people. You know, one of my favorite verses from Jesus, Jesus said, and this is a popular one, you hear this quite often in various places, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You ever heard that one before? Well, the, the whole verse that comes from that, Jesus says, if you, if you continue in my teachings, you're really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, what Jesus was not saying was that you're going to know stuff about the truth. You're going to know the right answers for Bible trivia. You're going to know Bible verses. That's not what Jesus was getting at. You know the word that Jesus, that's translated know into the English there? It's actually a Greek word which means experiential knowledge. Years ago, I, I grew up in West Texas. And I had known some people that lived in New Orleans before. I had heard a little bit of New Orleans music. Uh, I'd heard some stories about Mardi Gras. Heck, I even worked in a place called Bourbon Street in in Midland, Texas, that served authentic New Orleans food. (laughs) At least that's what I thought at the time. (laughs) And so I believed New Orleans existed. I kind of had an idea about it. But it wasn't until I moved to South Louisiana and actually started playing some music down there in New Orleans and hanging out in New Orleans and spending some time there that I I experienced it, that that my knowledge went from external to being on the inside. Because you haven't really experienced New Orleans until you've smelt the stank of Bourbon Street on a Sunday morning, you know, after (laughs) a Friday and Saturday of partying. You don't know New Orleans till you've gone down to Cafe Du Monde and had some beignets and some of that really black coffee or had a shrimp po' boy or heard a, a New Orleans brass band playing a second line or hit one of those potholes that pops up everywhere <laughs> or experienced the oppressive humidity of August. You don't know New Orleans until you've experienced that. 
my knowledge of New Orleans went from being a tourist, being an outside, to being a local. And this is the invitation of Jesus. He says, if you continue in my teachings, you're going to know truth. You're going to know truth, but not just like trivia, not just information. You're going to experience truth from the inside out. And that truth is going to set you free. You know, it was about 20 years ago that I gave my life to, to Jesus. And, you know, I was just in my living room one night, you know, just in a, in a very desperate place. And, and I prayed a very feeble prayer. I mean, I didn't know much about the right things to believe or say. I, I was just like, God, I, I heard that, that you love me and that you love me unconditionally. And I don't know why you would because I'm not a big fan of me right now. I don't love me. And nobody else seems to. But if you'll take me, I'm yours. It was a simple prayer. But God began to answer it. You know, there's a friend of mine, a guy named Dave, who's a, he's a pastor at a vineyard church up in Boston. And, and Dave, he grew up in a very kind of secular home. They didn't, they didn't really go to church. He went to church a few times because his mom made him. And, and his only impression of church was it was really boring. <laughs> And so he didn't really want to have anything to do with it. By the time he was 14 or 15, he decided, I'm going to be an atheist. And he loved that. Actually, by the time he got to college, he loved getting in fights with Christians. You ever know anybody like that? I mean, he just loved it. And and my friend Dave is a very brilliant guy. I mean, he pastors a church that up in, you know, in Boston where some of the people that go there are professors at MIT and Harvard and, you know, these kinds of places. He's a good guy. He's smart. (laughs) And he loved picking apart the reasonings of Christians. He loved getting in debates with them. Anytime he saw Christians gathering to talk about anything, he loved jumping up in the middle of them and, and, and whittling them down to size. But you know, at one, one, one point, Dave got into a place where he w- was really beginning to, to question that, you know, maybe there is a God and he was in a desperate place in his life. And, he, and so one night, he prayed a, a simple prayer, kind of like my prayer. He said, God... I don't know if I believe in you, but if you do exist, you mind showing up? You remind, would you mind revealing yourself to me, making yourself known? That was the extent of his prayer. And you know what? Over the next couple of weeks, he began to kind of encounter God in some, some very interesting ways. Like it, it was obvious that God was beginning to answer his prayer. Now, he didn't know what God he was talking to. He didn't know if it was Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or, or, you know, he he had no idea. So what did he do? He went down to, you know, he was in college at the time, so he decided to take a course on Sufi Islam. Now, now Sufi Islam is kind of the mystical branch of of Islam. And so he thought, well, mystical branch, you know, I'm kind of having these kind of encounters with God, so maybe that's the place to go. So he went and took Sufi Islam, and he's going through that course, and finally one day he talks to the professor. He says, look, you know, this is the experiences I've been having. I asked God to show himself to me. I didn't even believe in God, and I feel like God's been revealing himself to me. He's answering those prayers. Uh, do you think I need to convert to Islam? I mean, am I the kind of person that would fit with Sufi Islam? And the professor said, well, look, you know, um, here's the deal. Somebody that has your kind of experiences in our religion would be considered a prophet. And and he said, if you converted to Muslim, there's a problem. The last prophet that we believe in was a guy named Muhammad. (laughs) And so 
you convert to Islam, you start going around saying you're a prophet, get ready for a very strange kind of journey. So my friend realized really quick, he's like, okay, well, Islam's not for him. So he went to the, he decided to take a course in in, uh, Judaism and was taught by a wonderful rabbi. Again, he asked the same questions one day of the rabbi that he'd asked of the Muslim professor. He said, you know, I see in the Old Testament there are people who experience God in some very powerful ways. And, you know, I, I didn't even believe in God, but I began to ask him to reveal himself, and, and, and I feel like he's been answering my prayer. Of, Do you think I, I, you know, Judaism might be the thing for me? And, and the, uh, the rabbi kind of said the same thing that the is, Islamic professor said. He said, look, you know, there are people in Judaism who've experienced God in that way, but he said it's usually been isolated people it's been a prophet here a, a, a priest here it's not a common thing and so you know what my friend did he he ended up going to a a bible study with some christians he's like oh i'll, I'll try christianity see what what's up with that and when he showed up at this bible study they were studying the book of acts which if you're not familiar with acts it's it's kind of like the the history book of the early church it's a, it's a small book but they got to an interesting chapter in the, the second chapter of Acts where it talks about the birth of the church, really what, what many uh, scholars say. That was the day the church was born. And, and you know some really crazy things happened on that day. God's spirit got poured out on all kinds of people. Now, that was revolutionary. Actually, there's a guy named Peter. You, you might recognize his name. He was one of the, the disciples of Jesus. And Peter gets up in the middle of this, this crazy, all these crazy miracles and signs and wonders going on. And, and Peter stands up. He says, what you're seeing here today is what was prophesied by a, a prophet back in the Old Testament, a guy named Joel. And, and basically, Joel said that there's coming a day where it's not just going to be a prophet here or a priest here that, that gets the Spirit of God, but there's coming a day where God's going to pour out His Spirit on everybody, sons and daughters, men and women, young and old. And that night, my friend Dave, he said, that's it. I'm encountering the very Spirit of God here. God's been answering my prayers, and, and this is it. Like, I've been having a relationship with God, and, and I'm nobody special. I'm not a prophet or a priest or anything. I'm just... but. This Bible says that God would do that for anybody. And so Dave began to make his journey from just being an atheist to to being a a believer in some God out there to to actually having a relationship with God. And this is what I I think that, that in all the arguing about whether God exists or Jesus existed and virgin birth and end times and all the craziness that we could have all kinds of discussions. I think they kind of missed the point many times. Jesus came so that we could actually have a relationship with God. He came to deal with our sin issue, to deal with the barnacles, to deal with the barriers so we could actually connect with God. And you know, that's been my experience. You know, Jesus did not come to start a religion. He didn't. Jesus was not a big fan of starting a religion. I mean, actually, pretty much he picked a fight with every religious person he ever came in contact with. You know what I mean? He was always, he was not like a big fan of religion. Jesus came to deal with our sin issues so that we could be reconciled to God, so we could begin experiencing life the way God intended it. 
You know, years ago when I came to God, I, I was a mess. I'm still a mess a little. <laughs> I'm a better mess. <laughs> but I was a mess of addictions and anger and jealousy and pride. I, 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 I was just a mess. And that night that I, I finally just asked God, I was like, look, <laughs> I've heard that you love people, God. And I could really use someone that loves me. And, and if you do love me, if, if you'd accept me, I'm yours. That, that one little prayer, that one life, night began to put me on a different trajectory than I'd been on. And this journey for the last 20 years, God's been, been slowly transforming things on the inside. He's been taking away my shame, my guilt, dealing with those things that kept me separated, not just from God, but from other people. You know what that's like to be walled in by shame, not feeling like you could ever share who you really are with anybody else? That's a miserable place to be. It's kind of like hell on earth. And that's where I was for so long. And I got to tell you, just like my friend Dave, I've said a number of little prayers here and there over my journey, and God has answered me. God has answered me. Sometimes it's been just a, a kind of a still, small voice on the inside. Kind of it, sometimes it's just wisdom when I need it. God, I'm in over my head. I don't know what to do. A little help. <laughs> sometimes God has actually answered my prayers for healing, for myself, for mother. You know, just last week, Dina was, was sick. She had to go to work that morning. She was just feeling run down, starting to run a fever, just cold and stuff. And she had to go work with a bunch of babies and... That's just hard by itself. <laughs> and so you know what? I, I said, Dina, can I pray with you real quick? And she's like, sure. So I just grabbed her and said a, a quick prayer. Lord, I just pray that you would heal Dina. It was about that, that big. It wasn't <laughs> some wild, crazy prayer. You know what? In that moment, God healed her right there. She went to work. She didn't feel bad the rest of the week. Right there. Uh, it's just a little thing. I mean, it wasn't like getting getting healed from cancer or something. But I'm just saying what God's invited us in is, is, is to experience his presence, to know the truth relationally, to get our lives put back together, to get connected with him. And it begins to spill over into other areas of our lives. You know, now I, I can actually be a decent husband. And it's, it's not because I know a lot about being a decent husband. It's because God's love has been changing me. God's been taking out the barnacles. Now I'm, I'm beginning to learn how to be a decent father. Sometimes I'm better at it than others. But it's not because of my own efforts. It's because of what God's doing in me. And, and that's the, the trajectory that Jesus wants to put you on. I'm not saying that the moment you sign up for Jesus and just say, God, you know, reveal yourself to me. Like everything's going to be great. You know, it's not. My life actually got harder. <laughs> I'm just saying, though, that don't settle for, for just a bunch of rules and dogma. That's not why we're here tonight. We're not here to try to get you to... A lot of people think that like, like if, if I don't have all the rules figured out and if I'm not doing everything just the right way, I can't be in a relationship with God. And you know, that, That's not true. My friend Dave was an atheist. The night I talked to God, I was drinking whiskey. And about to run out of the last bit of my drugs. But you know, God will meet you right where you're at. So I, I just want to say that tonight. So you, you, we, because we could spend a lot, of, a lot of time talking about all the other things, but I think we missed the point about that. So the questions tonight, we're about to get in, we're, we're going to have some bread pudding with praline sauce. 
And it's good. It's some good stuff. I tell you what, you shall experience it. You shall know it <laughs> in a moment. And, and here's the deal tonight. We're, we're, we're going to take a break in just a second, and we're going to go have, have the uh, bread pudding, and you can get some coffee, and uh, we'll, we'll get on with the discussion tonight. But, but here are the ground rules. Tonight, I just want, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what was said tonight. Maybe the way that I talked about sin tonight is maybe a very different way than, than you've ever heard about it. Well, you might want to talk about that. Maybe this idea of being in a relationship with God is, is, is something you'd like to talk about. Well, we're, we're going to you know, have some conversation on that. But here are the ground rules of our discussion tonight. Number one, everybody gets to talk, okay? Now, how many of y'all are extroverts in here? You like to talk. Good thing Floyd's back at the soundboard. He can't, you know. <laughs> I'm an extrovert too. I, I, can, I can just start talking and nobody else will get a chance. If you're an extrovert, just try to practice a little self-awareness tonight and, and maybe hold back the urge to say something all the time. If you're an introvert and, and it's hard for you to talk, you don't have to talk tonight. You got the, the opportunity. So everybody gets to talk. Nobody has to talk. In the discussion tonight, though, this is the one ground rule that we're going to try to do. I know in this room, probably a lot of people have had, we've probably got a lot of baggage from religion, maybe, or, or I get that. I've got baggage. It's okay to share some of your experiences, but let's not share where you experience them. So, you know, let's not beat up on the Catholics or the Baptists or the Mormons or the Muslims or Jews or anything like that. Let's try to be respectful of of, of all these things, because where you might have had a bad experience, somebody else might have had a, a, a great encounter with God, okay? So that's it. We're going to eat some bread pudding now. <laughs>